today we're going to learn something, and I think what we're going to learn today may be familiar to many of us, but perhaps we'll see it in a new light. I want to teach you today a prayer that brings hope, and I think many of you are aware of this prayer. Our text for this series has been Romans chapter 15. In verse 13, the Bible says this, May the God of hope, I don't know, God is a God of hope. He's not a God of despair, gloom and doom, agony on me, whoa. You remember hee-haw? No. <laughs> I hope not. And uh, may he fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a beautiful benediction Paul gives us. We have reason for hope because we have a God of hope who fills us with hope. We said last week, hope is an internal confidence, regardless of circumstances that we have. It's an anticipation, an expectation for a bright future. Are you filled with hope today or are you kind of filled with despair, gloom, and doom? Here's a basic truth, and here's kind of the central point I want to get across today, and that is this. The further a person gets away from God, the less hope they have. The closer a person gets to God, the more hope they have. Pretty basic to understand, but let me say it one more time. The further a person gets away from God, the less hope they'll have. The closer a person gets to God, the more hope they will have. We see that... um, in Scripture, there was a guy named Job. Some people pronounce it Job. It was J-O-B, Job. And Job had a bad year. Have you ever had a bad year? He had a real bad year. He lost many members of his family. His children were killed. His business went south, and he got sick all in one year. And he was down, down, doobie-doo, down, down. And the scripture says that he had some comforters to come and try to bring him hope, but really they made him more hopeless. However, one of the comforters who came in Job 8 said something very profound, and I wanted to share that with you here today. He said this, can papyrus reeds grow tall without a marsh? Now, we don't understand that in Maine, but we could say cattails. How many know? Cattails. Cattails need that, that, that wet ground to grow. And can marsh grass flourish without water? Well, of course, no is the answer. While they're still flowering, if the water dries up, not ready to be cut, they'll begin to wither more quickly than grass. And here's what he says. The same happens to all who forget God. The hopes of the godless evaporate. Just like the snow that evaporated Wednesday that quickly. People who forget God, who do not have their hope in God, it evaporates. They they get listless in life. They get full of despair. And here's what happens to people that forget God. They look for hope in other things, in success, in relationships, in wealth, and they get disappointed. And oftentimes, people will look to the highest thing that they think of that can bring them hope, which is government. Government... You know, depending on who's in office or what, we look to the White House, we look to the Blaine House, deliver us, help, give us hope, and we get disappointed often, don't we? No wonder so many people are angry and frustrated, because hope is not found 
in government, even though government's important and ordained by God and we have a responsibility to government. But our hope is in the Lord. The reason we are optimistic, the reason we expect good days ahead and good things is because we serve a God who fills us with hope and with joy and with peace. Those who forget God, those who are godless, they have no basis for hope. When a culture forgets God, wealth is idolized. Truth, minimized. Life, trivialized. Everything gets commercialized. Education, secularized. Free markets are monopolized. Races, polarized. Morals, liberalized. Immorality, popularized. Drugs, legitimized. Sin, glamorized. The courts, paralyzed. Broken families, rationalized. Manners, uncivilized. Christians, demonized. God, marginalized. No wonder so many people don't have hope. But hope is not merely wishing for something good to happen. Biblical hope is not just optimism. I mean, you know, you can have wishful thinking and you can be optimistic, and I'm not against either of them, but they're not grounded in reality oftentimes. And hope is theological, not just psychological. It comes to us based on our belief about God. Now, I'm not going to get into the Hebrew word like uh, Pastor Jay did last week, but what I want to do is talk about three kinds of hope, kind of in the way we, we look at hope as a culture. And the first kind of hope, these three kinds of hope, the first kind of hope I call wishful hope. I hope it happens. That's how we use the word hope often. It's what most people think of when they think of hope, wishful thinking. For example, you're running late to work, and so you take off in a tear, and you hit Broadway or Union Street, all the traffic lights, and you're like, I hope I get green lights. <laughs> Wishful hope is kind of, when, when you, financially you're under a little bit of strain, and so you go and buy a Powerball ticket. <laughs> and you say, I hope these are the numbers. Right? How do we know your chances of getting struck by lightning are far greater? but you're hoping. What is it? That's just wishful thinking. It's not based on reality. It's a Hail Mary pass, football terms, right? You're just hoping. You're wishful. That's not Bible hope. Now, there is another kind of hope that we talk about that's more grounded in reality. And this kind of hope, I'll call expectant hope. So there's something behind it, but it's no guarantee. So for example, after the last full moon in the month of May, it's time to plant your garden. And I remember one year, Lisa and I got a little bit uh, unrealistic, overexcited about a garden. We said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to plant three, about the size of this room, all gardens, and we're going to do a little stand at the end of the driveway. We're going to sell vegetables. Well, here's the problem. We had no experience, and we hate gardening. <laughs> but we had this idea. And so 
uh, we did have a little help. We had a guy come with a rototiller and dug up all this ground. And I'm like, wow. And so one year, this happened one year, we worked really hard. And I'll never forget the rows of potatoes. We're going to sell bags of potatoes, fresh potatoes, you know. And so we, we got all the little spuds and we planted them. And sure enough, they started to come up. And I'm like, oh, these are awesome. We're going to make so much money on potatoes. How stupid is that? Well, what happened was when those beautiful green plants came up, all of a sudden, I have no idea where they came from. Hell, I think. <laughs> we had these potato bugs just cover all of our potato plants. And I don't know if you've ever seen a potato bug, but they're kind of like a piece of candy that you squish and the orange stuff comes out. They are nasty looking, but they're very squishy. And so every morning I would get up, I'm like, where do these things come from? We've never had potatoes before. And so I would just squish potato bugs day after day. And pretty soon we were just overwhelmed with potato bugs. And because we're trying to be organic, we didn't use any pesticides. And um, what happened was they ate all our potatoes. We had a couple little ones like this big. And we never did a garden like that again. But my point is that I had expectation. I was hopeful. We're going to have a fantastic garden, and we're going to, you know, sell some vegetables and be a blessing to the neighbors. No, 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 it didn't happen. What happened? Well, it wasn't just wishful hope. It wasn't just a Hail Mary pass. I hope. No, we, we actually worked, you know, killed the bugs and planted the flowers and watered them. It just, we didn't get the expected end we had hoped. Now, we you know, on a more serious note, when a woman is pregnant, we say she is what? Expecting. Well, there's good reason to believe that a healthy baby's coming, but how many know it isn't always a guarantee? Some of the most heartbreaking things in life happen, unfortunately, with that. My point is this. Expectant hope is stronger than wishful hope, but it's not a slam dunk. It's not a guarantee. But the Bible talks about another kind of hope that I call certain hope. This is a guarantee. This is a slam dunk. This is, it's going to happen. And because of that, it becomes in our lives an anchor. Certain hope, for example, we say that based on God's character, his nature, which is immutable, God does not change, God is faithful, based on who God is, that what he, when he makes a promise, and there are thousands of promises in Scripture, it's going to come to pass. All the prophecies about the Messiah come to pass. There are some prophecies we haven't seen yet. How many know the, the second coming of Christ is one of them? But even that, what is that called? We call it the blessed hope. Why? He's coming back. We know that. So there's a certainty in God. And this trust that we have for God and for his word creates in us strength, stability. It's an anchor in our lives, a hope. You see, if we're not careful, we all can drift. Is that not true? We all drift. If we're not careful, we'll all drift from God. We'll drift to the comfortable. We'll drift to selfishness. We drift in our relationships. We drift in our marriages. We drift from our dreams and from our goals. What hope is in our life, though, it's an anchor. It keeps us fixed. Now, Hebrews says it this way. Hebrews 
6 and 19, the first part of this verse says this. This hope that we have, this certain hope in God, it's a strong and a trustworthy anchor for our souls. And what does an anchor do? Keeps us from drifting. When I was a kid, my dad had an idea. His idea was to get a boat on the ocean. Now, he'd never had a boat before other than a little 13-foot canoe. But he got this idea, I'm going to get a boat, a cabin cruiser. And so he bought a 30-foot boat. We moored it at Northeast Harbor. And it was called the Sea Nymph II. I still remember it. And so dad had somebody, I think he bought it somewhere down in Rockland and drove it up with this other guy who had experience in a boat. And we moored it in Northeast Harbor. And we had all these expectations, bought all the stuff for the boat. You know, it's going to be great. I'm maybe 10 or 12. My sister's probably, well, she's three years younger than me. So however, she's seven or nine, whatever. I don't remember how old we but I remember the moment. And here's why. Dad didn't know how to use the anchor. And so we get on this boat. And Northeast Harbor, the tides are coming pretty good. And how many know there are rocks in Maine? And if the waves are kind of rough and you don't have an anchor when you're off the mooring, where are you headed? For the rocks. So here we are, traumatized. We unhook the mooring. Dad tries to start the boat. And now we're floating, drifting towards the rocks. And he can't get the thing started. I don't know why. <laughs> But all I see is the shoreline coming closer, and we're drifting. Talk about being hopeless as a traumatized. No wonder I had so many fears as a kid. So I, I have this, this memory of my dad panicking and saying to my mother, get the life jackets on them. And we had those sea life jackets, so they're like this big orange putt. You just see a little pinhead sticking through this. And so my sister and I have these life jackets on. We're standing like, are we going to crash in the boat? Dad didn't think to put the anchor down. I don't know if he knew how to use the anchor. He finally, Lord, very grateful for this. He finally figured it out, and he started it, and we were fine. It was just some little thing that he had to do. But the point is this. When we're drifting in life, it's not a safe place to be. And there's so many people that are hopeless, that are drifting in life, that need an anchor to keep them safe, an anchor. And that anchor is the Lord. And when our hope is in him, it's certain. It keeps us from drifting. Another thing an anchor does is bring stability. You ever see some of those huge ships? And up on the side, each side, they've got these humongous anchors. It keeps the ship from pitching and rolling in, in storms. And when our hope is in God... And we're filled with that certain hope that all the promises of God in Christ are yes and in him, amen. It'll keep you from drifting in life into unsafe waters and it will keep you stable in the storms of life. This hope is a trustworthy anchor for our souls. And real hope is, is based on God, his immutable character, his nature, his word, God's word and not on my wishes. Oh, I hope this happens or I, I hope things change. This wishful hope or even expectant hope. I'm, I'm planning on this. I'm pl Don't put your hope in circumstances which change. Put your hope in God. 
Trust in the God of all hope. Certain hope is based on the fact that God cannot lie. Real hope is based not on what I sense, but on what God has said. All the, all the promises in Scripture that God makes are sure and certain. Now, years ago, I'll tell you a little story here. Um, when we started the first church in Portland, way back in 1998, in the Rock Church, I talked to the pastor this week, is doing very well. They're in a building program like we are, and um, God's blessing them. But it wasn't always that way. After we started the church, we were three or four years into it, and we were rookies, you know, never planted a church before. And um, things were not going well. And I was getting kind of hopeless. I was, I was, I don't know if despair, <laughs> I don't know. I had a pastor friend who said, um, listen, Kirk, if I, if I can keep you from hurting yourself, I think someday God's going to bless your church. You just don't quit. But I was very emotionally unstable. I was hopeless. I was kind of at my wit's end. So I ended up going to this church conference in New Hampshire. I don't even remember the hotel it was at. I don't even remember the guy's name who was speaking. All I remember is being very discouraged and going and sitting in the hot tub. And there's another dude in the hot tub. And, you know, whenever you, you go to sit in a hot tub, you don't really want some strange guy sitting in there, but whatever. So you know, guys, how we are. Suck your gut in a little bit. <laughs> kind of puff up. How you doing? Sit down in the hot tub by him. <laughs> and uh, we just started this conversation. He could tell. He said, this, this poor kid, you know, he's looking pretty bad. And he just asked me a little bit what I did. And I said, oh, you know, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're here at the conference. So he was here at the conference. And um, I, I could tell that he just was having, he had compassion on me, which I'm thankful for now. So anyway, come to find out, he was one of the pastors at a church in California called Saddleback Church. And um, Rick Warren was the pastor there, wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. One of the most popular um, nonfiction books in American history. Sold, I don't know if he's 50 million copies now or whatever, but a lot. Anyway, this guy worked with Rick Warren and he was, had compassion on me. He said, listen, I was kind of lamenting about how things are not going well and I'm discouraged. And he said, why don't we do this? Let me check and see what I can do. But We've got a conference out here to kind of give you some skill on, you know, how to start a church. And why don't, why don't I see if I can help you guys get out here? I said, that'd be great. I didn't know if I'd ever hear from him again, but I did. He called me and he said, hey, listen, I talked it over. We're going to fly you and your wife out here to Southern California on our dime, get you a car, put you up in a hotel, and we want to help you. And I'm like, cool. I'd never been to California at that time. So they fly us out to California, and we get to the desk there, and uh, a rental car was not available. So you know what they gave us? A Mustang convertible. <laughs> so I'm driving in Southern California, a plane ticket I didn't buy, and a car that I didn't rent, and um, put us up in this hotel. I just never forget. It was just such a beautiful hotel. I'm like you got to be kidding me. Do you know who you're talking to? Some, you know, some little kid from Maine. They just treated us so well. And um, really, that was like a pivotal time in my life because I didn't have any training 
you'll be encouraged to hear this. In Bible school, I had no training on how to be a pastor or how to plant a church. I went to be an evangelist, you know, kind of like Billy Graham. That was my dream. So I didn't know a thing really about pastoring, and it was obvious, or about church planting or anything, but they trained us. And I've always been grateful um, to that ministry for helping us in our time of need, really. It started to give us hope. And it's one of those things when you feel hopeless, you know, God has people out there maybe you've never met before that'll say just the right thing at just the right time to encourage you. Anyway, we came uh, back to Maine and started to implement some of these things, and it, it helped. It really was a beneficial thing. Well, several years later, I was at another conference. This is in Florida, and um, Rick Warren was supposed to be the speaker, and I was pumped, you know, because I hadn't seen him in like a decade, and I was like, oh, this will be cool, and, and um, come to find out he couldn't, he couldn't make it because his son, one of the most popular pastors in America who sold 40, 50 million books. And by the way, he paid the church back every dime they ever paid him. People would criticize him, but he paid them back every dime he ever got in a salary. He gives 90% away and lives on 10%. So he's a very, um, he, he practices what he preaches. Anyway, he couldn't make it. And the reason is because his adult son had just committed suicide. Yeah. And it just kind of hits you. It's like, oh, my word. People that are seemingly doing everything in right for God in life and are generous and God still suffer like this. But what's interesting, I heard him say a message after that, that for years prior to his son committing suicide, he was studying the subject of hope. And what makes people hopeful? What makes people hopeless? And doing this survey, he came across the 10 most common causes of hopelessness. He surveyed many, many people. And I want to go through it real quickly with you and see if you can identify with any of these. These are the 10 most common causes of hopelessness. And again, I got this from Rick Warren. First thing is this. People get hopeless when they feel alone or abandoned. Alone. You know what's amazing? When, when someone is lonely, they can be in a crowd like this and still feel like they're the only person there. Loneliness is that, it's that blackness that kind of follows you around. And abandonment goes hand in hand with loneliness. And oftentimes it's from disappointment with those in our life that should have been there for us but weren't. Causes deep wounds and a sense of hopelessness. The second thing he found was this. People are hopeless when their life seems out of control. Like they feel things are never going to change. It tends to breed this overwhelming feeling of, I'm out of control. I can't fix this. I get hopeless. A third thing he found was this. People get hopeless when they don't see a purpose in pain. It's kind of like the book of Job. We were talking about he had a bad year. Why? Why, God, is this happening? And sometimes we ask God, why do I have to go through this? Why am I suffering this way? Another reason people lose hope is they grieve a loss, a loss of a loved one, a loss of a child, a loss of a job, a loss in a marriage, loss of health. It causes this sense of despair and hopelessness. Another reason, and these aren't in any particular order of importance, 
is that we feel like we don't have what we need. If I just had more opportunities, if I had more money, if I had more talent, if I had more energy, then I would be hopeful. Then my dreams would be realized. But we feel like we don't have what we need. Another thing, and I've seen this one before because I used to live in this space, is when we feel like we've done something wrong and we carry around this sense of guilt, shame, regret. I used to live this way. I used to live with regret. And it was based really on a promise that I made to God that I never fulfilled, so I had this sense of just, I always felt like I was a disappointment to God. I felt guilty. And I remember really through studying the Scripture and through people helping me understand the Scripture that I finally was able to come to the realization, you know what? God removes my guilt and my shame. I don't need to feel that way. I I remember the sermon I preached. It was on a, uh, we were in Scarborough at the time and it was called The Day I Kiss Guilt Goodbye. You're struggling with guilt and remorse, regrets. Another thing that caused people to lose hope is to be deeply wounded by somebody else. Maybe you've been abused physically, emotionally, sexually, physically. Uh, Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend or a spouse. Another thing that causes people to lose hope is you're pulled in the wrong direction, constantly tempted or yielding to temptation, giving into it. Maybe it's an addiction, drugs or alcohol or Maybe it's porn or some secret sin, something that is constantly tempting you. It's before you, and you feel this pull so strongly that when you give into it, you feel uh, hopeless, like I can't break out of this. Another one is, and this one's probably the one I've dealt with the most, is being hounded by fear, having constantly being buffeted by anxiety, terrorized, And then finally, when it looks like defeat, when it looks like you're on the losing side, you haven't been treated fairly, it's not going to go well for you. These things all cause hopelessness. Now, here's the secret sauce. You ready? There is a prayer in Scripture that probably many of us, if not most of us, have heard before. And maybe many of us say this prayer or pray this prayer on a regular basis. And what's interesting to note, and this is the parallel that Rick Warren drew with hopelessness, someone who'd lost a son to suicide, is as he studied the subject of hope and hopelessness more and more, and he came across the Lord's Prayer, there are 10 major statements in the Lord's Prayer. And what's interesting is these 10 statements that Jesus taught us, not in a formula to pray, but in a structured prayer, speak hope directly to those 10 things that cause people to be hopeless. And when I saw this in a new light, I began to put it into practice more and more. And I'm telling you, it does cause hope to rise. Why? The closer we get to God, the more hopeful we become. And the further we get from God, the less hope we have. And for whatever reason, these last few months, there's been a couple things that I've seen in the Scripture that we've talked about here that have really stuck with me. And one is what Jesus said, again, the Sermon on the Mount, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount a lot, where Jesus said this, consider the ravens. I remember that one, consider the ravens. 
And every time, I don't know why it is, maybe I really needed it this season of life, but do you know how many crows and ravens we have around here? <laughs> every time I see a crow or a raven, this, this might happen to me 20 times in a day, my mind immediately goes to that scripture where Jesus said, consider the ravens. Do I not take care of them? They don't sow or toil, yet I take care of them. He's going to take care of us. And my mind is constantly on a daily basis. Every time I see a crow, I'm, oh my word, thank you, Lord. And I just will say a quick prayer. Thank you, God. You're taking care. And the second thing that's been coming up in my mind, and for whatever reason, this happens in the night. I like it when I go to bed and I wake up the next morning and I've slept the whole night, but it almost never happens to me. I wake up 20 times in the night. And when I wake up, this prayer is on my mind. And it just inspires me with hope. And I want to go through it real quickly with you because these 10 things that are the most common causes of hopelessness, these 10 statements in the Lord's Prayer give us 10 reasons for hope. Remember, we said the first one is people feel hopeless because they're lonely or abandoned. But here's what Jesus said. He taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven. My loving Father, your loving Father, will never abandon me. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Only about 15 times in the Old Testament do we see God referred to as a Father. For example, in Isaiah, you shall be called the Prince of Peace, you know, wonderful counselor, the everlasting Father. But even then, it doesn't seem like it's as personal. Here, Jesus comes, and as he begins his teachings in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 65 times we see our Heavenly Father being called our Father. You know what that word literally translated means? Abba, Daddy. It's almost disrespectful. But Jesus is teaching us, listen, when you go to pray, you go to your Heavenly Daddy. Listen, I'm a father. I have four children. If it's in my ability and power to help one of my kids, and now my grandkids, I'm going to do it because I love them. I feel a sense of I want to protect them. I want to help them. And even if I fall down on the job, how many know God is a good heavenly father? No good thing does he withhold to those who walk uprightly. You are children of God when we come to God through faith in Christ. And now God, the creator of the universe, the all-intelligent, all-present, all-powerful being is your heavenly daddy who said you'll never be alone. Even on your darkest day, when you feel like everyone's disappointed you or abandoned you, you are never alone. Our father, which art in heaven, our daddy. And then he goes on to the second thing. He says, Hallowed be thy name. When life seems out of control and you're hopeless and you're like, nothing's going to change. I just don't see the way out. Know this, that God's power is greater than any problem in your life. And when we say hallowed be your name, we are saying God's name is sacred. There is power in the name. There's power in his name. I remember as a kid learning this because... As I said many times, I was terrorized with fear. And my mother taught me to, to, to use the name of Jesus. And I tell you, this works. The name of Jesus is powerful. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I remember the day 
when we were driving from a little country church in East Holden, Maine, driving home, mom was, we had a station wagon. Remember those? And it was a, a snowy, slippery day. My little sister and I were in the car and mom is driving in the station wagon. And all of a sudden we hit black ice and the car started to do one of these things. And the car went down over the bank and my mother took her hands off the wheel and she screamed, Jesus! And I don't know how it happened, but the car went right back up on the road and stopped. <laughs> Crazy. I remember the time my wife was driving down Interstate 95. We were newly married. And she's driving behind a pickup truck with a snowmobile facing her. And she heard the Holy Spirit say, turn in the other lane. And she's like, ah. <laughs> you ask her. And she's the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, get in the other lane. And so she didn't know why, but she just turned in the other lane. The second she turned in the other lane, the hood of that snowmobile blew off and landed and smashed right in the interstate. It would have gone right through her windshield. Listen, God cares about the details of your life. And if you'll call on his name, he'll be there to deliver you. In your pain, in your suffering, when life seems out of control, Hallowed be thy name. Your name is holy, God. Your name is powerful, God. And we thank you that we can use the name of God, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. When we don't understand what is the purpose and pain, we need to remember all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. God is sovereign. Lord, your kingdom come. It's not my kingdom I'm building on this earth. It's not your kingdom, God. It's, it's your kingdom, not ours. You're sovereign, God. You're in control. You set the boundaries of the universe, of the sea, of all the details of life. Your plan ultimately will be done and fulfilled in this world. You give us freedom of choice within these boundaries, but God, your will be done. And we're to pray that way. Your kingdom come. And the second thing, your will be done. When you're grieving a loss, when you don't understand, when you're in pain, when you're striving and things don't seem to add up or make sense, Lord, we, we pray like Jesus did. Lord, here's what I want, but nevertheless, thy will be done. That place of surrender. We see that God is our heavenly father. He is the source and supply of our needs. That his name is sacred and powerful. That, his, that he is sovereign in his kingdom. He is in control. And that we surrender our lives to his will. There's a greater purpose than what we see. And it's our job to surrender to him and to trust him. And as we begin to pray this, and God gets bigger and God is closer to us, hope begins to rise, begins to bubble up. This expectation, God's in control. God knows my name. And it's a beautiful thing. The fifth thing, when we feel like we don't have what we need, if I just had more money, if I just had more time, if I had more talent, if I had more energy, if I had more friends, listen, God has promised to meet our daily needs. What did he tell us to pray? Give us this day our daily bread, our daily needs. Some people have the attitude, God's busy. He's got a lot on his plate. I don't need to bother him with this trivial little thing in my life. But that's not what Jesus taught us. He taught us to every day, just like the children of Israel, every morning would get up and get manna. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God wants us to depend on him for our daily needs. 
What do you need today? Is it friends? Is it hope? Is it health? Is it money? Ask him for your daily needs. And then this, this issue of guilt. I've done something wrong. I feel remorse. I feel regret. Jesus died to pay for all I've done wrong. What did he teach us to do? God, forgive our debts, our trespasses, our sins. Aren't you glad God is in the forgiving business? You can kiss guilt goodbye. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You feel hope begin to rise. Now, this is conditional. Forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. You need freedom. You need hope. Forgive that person that abused you, that betrayed you, that misled you that ripped you off, that hurt your feelings. Yeah, but I, I just can't. Yes, you can. Jesus uses an example of this. He said, listen, and I won't get into all the parable, but he said, basically, it's like this. Someone sins against you this much, and you won't forgive them. Yet you sin. Think if we just sinned against God once a day in word or thought or deed. How many days old are we? How many sins do we accumulate against God? How many commandments have we broken? Multiple thousands. And this person's done this much, yet we have this account with God. And if we say, God, I will not forgive them, God says, then I'm not forgiving you. But if we, by faith, say, God, even when my emotions are all over the place, I willfully choose to forgive them, begin to pray blessings on them, that their eyes be open, that they repent, I forgive them. God said, I'm gonna wipe your slate clean. No more guilt, no more remorse, no more of these sensitive feelings, these emotions that throw you all over the place. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then for those of us that are tempted to sin or bound by addictions of some kind, he told us to pray this way, lead us not into temptation. As I've been praying this prayer recently, I feel a strength on the inside to resist temptation that sometimes I succumb to. And one of the things I've needed to do is get off the internet more. Don't watch so much news or stuff on YouTube because it creates this like, ugh. I don't know how you're gonna, God's going to lead you out of temptation, but we're to pray that. Lead me. Away from it, God. I don't want to fight this battle anymore. Help me, God. And then another one. Almost done here. The ninth thing. Is Jesus in me is greater than any other power. And he's told us, deliver me from evil. What's going on right now in relationships, at your work, in your home, that you just feel evil? You feel strife, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, this evil in your life. Lord, deliver me. Help. And then finally, when it looks like defeat, when you can't see light at the end of the tunnel, know that this is not the end of the story. And Jesus taught us to say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
What's beautiful is this, that if you're feeling hopeless, know that you need to challenge those hopeless thoughts. Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. Whenever you're hearing something from Satan, you can be sure it's a lie. And those thoughts aren't true and they can't be trusted. But God is faithful, God is true, and he can be trusted. And here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. You ready? Every time you see a crow, just throw up a prayer, a raven, and say, thank you, God, for taking care of all my needs. I don't have to worry about anything. And every time you're tempted to be discouraged or hopeless, just methodically go through the Lord's Prayer. Line upon line, verse upon verse, meditate on it and see if hope doesn't rise. Isaiah said this, when you pass through the waters, God will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you could preach this, couldn't you? You'll not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Why? For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to end this today before Pastor Jay comes and closes us with all of us saying the Lord's Prayer together. And we're going to say it out of the King James Version. And um, so if you're used to saying trespasses, just bear with us and say debts because it's that way, debtors, okay? But let's just pray this together. And let's, let's just methodically think about it and allow hope to rise because the closer we get to God, the more hopeful we become. And the further we get away from God, the less hopeful we become. But the good news is, for everything that causes hopelessness and discouragement in our life, there is a prayer and there is a promise that bring us hope. It's based on who our Heavenly Father is. Let's pray this together. You ready? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, Pastor Jay's coming to close us out here.